Uh, kia ora koutou, ko pōra mila tōku ingoa, kanui te mihi ki a koutou katoa, nō reira tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. Uh, I want to particularly acknowledge the mana whenua of Otatahi, Nai Tua Huriri. And I want to welcome you to An Hour with Vincent O'Sullivan. Uh, this session is uh, supported by Penguin Random House and Victoria University Press. Uh, and uh, um, my name is Paul Miller, and uh, we're looking at around about 40 minutes where Vince and I will have a chat, and then we're going to open up and ask, invite people to uh, ask questions as well. Um, not only is Vince um, in this session, but uh, he tomorrow, uh, no, sorry, Sunday, uh, he will be here uh, at the piano from three to four for the session on Ralph Hortery, uh, and this is following uh, Vincent's um, biographical portrait of Hortery called The Dark is Light Enough. And then after that, he'll also be involved in the Dear Catherine, Catherine Mansfield section. Uh, throughout the, 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 the session today, um, Vince will periodically read us a poem or two. Um, his new book of poems, which is about to come out, is called Things Okay With You. Uh, and he also has a, a new play coming out soon called Small Acts of Malice. Um, Vince is a multiple winner of New Zealand Book Awards. He was the 2014 National Library Poet Laureate. He was the 2008 Auckland University Honorary Doctor of Literature, 2005 winner of the Prime Minister's Award for Literary Achievement. 2004, he became a Professor Emeritus at Victoria University. And in 2000, he was made a Distinguished Companion of the New Zealand Order of Merit. And I wonder if you'll just join me once more in welcoming him. This edition of Landfall, Landfall 52, was published 61 years ago when I was minus three, and, 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 and Vince was 21, you would have been, in 1959. Um, the, this edition contains Vince's first poem, um, and his good friend, the writer Michael Jackson, who also appeared in the issue, wrote of this poem that even at this early stage, Vincent has found his voice in Antigone, the poem, one can pick up the vernacular ellipses and idioms of New Zealand speech, a measure of Vincent's commitment not only to unpretentiousness, but to the ways in which the miraculous finds expression within the mundane. Now, it may be that Vince never forgives me for this, but I'm going to quote the third stanza of Antigone. Words drip like tears from the Myonian statue. Everything's poetic from beneath. But climbers who scaled the tempting rock, the sombre mountain, haven't the breath for song, the mood to clink. Stand and sing, clamber and keep silent. Now that question in that last line seems to propose an oxymoronic choice along the lines of those who can do and those who don't create art. But um, given the extent to which six decades later Vince has both clambered and sung, um, this is surely ironic. For Vincent O'Sullivan, the writer is large. His definition of writer does contain multitudes. So here's my back-of-the-envelope calculation. He's produced three dozen academic uh, editions and publications, the major series of, of uh, edited Mansfield letters and influential New Zealand anthologies. 
two dozen editions of poetry, three novels, 10 books of short stories, 15 major academic essays and articles, various scripts for radio and screen, nine libretti with music by Ross Harris, a dozen plays, nine performed or published, two biographies, John Morgan and the recent um, Ralph Hottery book, as well as various forms of journalism and editing for both popular press and academic titles. I can't think of another New Zealand writer who has worked so successfully for so long in such a range of genres. And my question to you, Vince, is what have I missed? <laughs> well, I wish you'd missed that first poem you read. <laughs> it's it's a, a very good example, that, of someone conducting their education in public. And <laughs> there's no excuse for it, really. And uh, that's the awful thing when you're young, that you... Uh, you desperately want people to know how much you know, and then at my age, want them to not know how much you've forgotten. <laughs> so uh, these are the brackets of my life, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for me, that poem, um, and I think for I, I'm, no, I'm no mountaineer, but you know, the, this the sense of you looking upwards and, yes. and of hoping to aspire to something, and then recognizing yes. that that the labour to achieve it yes. uh, may may potentially silence you, but you can be both. And and I just wonder, um, uh, you know, thinking about maybe what you haven't included, and and I don't want to talk too much. I'm going to give one more quote, and then I'm going to be quiet for a while. Um, in the introduction to your fish riff, still shines when you think of it, Bill Manhire and Peter Whiteford note that one obvious absence from the list of Vincent's publications is that of autobiography. And so my question is, um, have you considered autobiography? I've known you for 30 years, and I'm amazed to realise how little I know of your life. Um, Del Penny's very brief chronology in her study of your work, Let the Writers Stand, tantalises with hints you were born in 1938. You were the youngest of a, a Catholic family of six. You grew up in Ponsonby. So spill a little bit. What was your childhood like? Is it anywhere in your writing? Can you pull out examples that you think influenced your literature? Well, I think it was a fairly, <clears throat> uh, fairly ordinary sort of New Zealand boyhood in, a, in an Auckland suburb. And uh, <clears throat> the thing that always strikes me about authors writing autobiographies is it um, how they hope to astound you with yet another remarkable instance of their success or adventures and uh, I can't think of many at all so consequently that's one form of writing I'll certainly not be uh, ever indulging as I've said before I don't, I don't really care for the main character enough <laughs> to, to spend that long you know, years of... Uh, well, I, I can think of a writer at the moment who's on his third volume of uh, autobiography, um, which, well, you have different ideas of extravagance, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I do recall you saying at one stage that you probably couldn't do autobiography because you don't have the imagination for it. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, that's true, and also, this is absolutely true, I would find it very difficult to tell the truth for that long. Um, even Mansfield says, uh, writing to husband about a story, she said, the trouble is I falsify slightly. You can't write about your, anything much, but especially yourself, I find anyway, without falsifying. Not necessarily to make yourself more interesting or attractive, 
but somehow to make it neater, to make, you know, to cut the frayed edges off the, off the canvas sort of thing. Mm. Um, autobiography is just too tidy, I think, to, to really be appealing to me. Mm. Mm. So what was your kick-off in the writing game? What got you started? Um, well, I wasn't, thank goodness, precocious in any way. Um, it was while I was at university I started writing, and it was after... I had not been particularly interested in writing at school or anything. It was when I was about 15 and, and uh, read Keats, and uh, more or less by mistake. And uh, that was the beginning of the end, really, because it seemed to me that nothing could be as interesting as what was going on in that page. And you keep reading further and further just to, to gratify that instinct in yourself. But that poem of Brashus, this is how sort of innocent I was when I sent my first poems to Brash. And <laughs> about that poem, he wrote back and said, oh, there was one line he wasn't sure about. And I wrote back, and said, oh, well, look, just put what you like there. <laughs> <laughs> and he severely wrote in return that this was a shocking abnegation of paternity. <laughs> <laughs> so that's really when I started, and then I started writing uh, fiction much later in, I suppose, my thirties or something. What was your impression of Charles Brash as a, as a sort of mentor and a, and a shaper? I, I remember a Baxter poem where he sort of talked to Muir's Uncle Alan, um, you know, waiting as he had done for years to find another masterpiece in Box It's Dirty Years or something along those yes. lines. Yes. But, oh, well, I, I like Brash a lot, actually. He was... Uh, he, he used to visit Auckland where I was a student and it was like an archbishop visiting the provinces. And... Um, Everyone sort of was in awe of him, and he was so reserved and courteous that um, I didn't quite know how to cope. And as Bill uh, Oliver said to me once, well, that's because you were an Aucklander and you weren't used to that sort of thing. <laughs> but uh, he, was, he was so encouraging, mm. I mm. thought. Mm. You didn't have many laughs with Charles, mm. but... Uh, <clears throat> He was very encouraging and uh, <clears throat> had a very sharp eye. And I, it's difficult to think of any New Zealander, I think, who's comparable, who had his amount of wealth and put it entirely into the arts. And we're still, every year with the fellowships in Dunedin and so on, we're getting the benefit of that. And if there is a a cultural, a single cultural hero in New Zealand, it should be brash. Mm. So Auckland, 59, 60, you were doing honours in English. Yes, yeah. Um, that was an amazing department at that time. I mean, I'm thinking who was there? Michael, M.K. Joseph, John Reed, Alan Curnow, Bill Pearson. Yeah, Sidney Musgrove. Sid Musgrove, yeah. 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 What was it like to learn in that environment? It was a, a, a very good... Very good department and a very good lesson in one particular way. For example, there was, there is still, I think, no New Zealand writer I admire as much as Alan Curnow. And there's no single person in my life I've met who was less attractive. Uh, he was, he was 
was sort of very lazy as a tutor and so on. He, he came across as sort of rather vain and so on. And it was a good example of don't expect writers to be nice people. And I think, in fact, he's a great writer and there are very good things about him, of course, that I wasn't capable of seeing at the time. But in retrospect, I think I was very lucky um, <clears throat> to have had someone like that. As a, um, I remember I made this mistake once in showing him a poem, and he said, oh, yes, he said, people, people show me these things most years. And, you know, because you know his voice, well, you know it as a bit working with him, he had this Canterbury canonical whine, <laughs> to it, didn't he? And it always sounded as if he was in a pulpit and you were lucky to be in the pews. But I suppose that saying this about him is a way of enforcing my admiration, although you mightn't think so. So you, mean, so you mentioned reading Keats. Hmm? You mentioned reading Keats and at the age of 15 and, and, and the, the effect of reading Keats. Who, who were your other literary influences? I mean, you know, what really sort of opened up your mind to the possibilities? Well, when you first come to university, and if you come from a fairly ordinary background where books are around but not sort of classic, <coughs> classics and so on, anything you read virtually comes as a surprise. Um, so, you know, the first time you re read a Robert Frost poem or the first time you read a Hartley story or something, this is really... You're still picking the fruits of Eden when you have the opportunity to do that. And so there was nothing structured about my reading or anything like that. It was just that you keep reading things and enjoying them, and that leads on to something else. So I think that is a word I'd use about my, I suppose, my writing life, to call it that generally, uh, generally is that is it's pretty unstructured, that it doesn't, didn't have a final point to arrive at, and, or if it did, I don't know about it mm. yet. So do you think that unstructuredness is one of the reasons why you're just so diverse in the genre you write in? I mean, how do you decide whether you're going to do a, a sort of libretto or a novel next, or do you, do you keep a whole lot of things on the boil at the no, same time? I, I don't think of myself as a, as a short story writer or a poet or anything, but simply as a writer. And if you're a writer, that means you write what is attractive to you at that moment. And so whether it's one genre or another isn't such a, an important decision. Your interest at the time makes the decision for you. And you know that some things will work as a story and other things won't, and so on. Mm. So, uh, in fact, just talking about it now, I feel a bit awkward because there's nothing that I can point to to say why I, I work like that. It's just that being interested in writing means that you... You write what, what interests you, it's obvious. Do you write, do you write just sort of set hours? I mean, you know, Sargison was famous for his write in the morning and garden in the afternoon. No, I mean, when do you garden? Well, that's why I always envied or admired uh, people like Morris G and Shadbolt and so on, because to be um, novelists on the scale they were, um, you simply have to be have a sense of temporal dedication. Um, and if you haven't got that, I don't think you're, you're going to be a, a consistent novelist. But if you sort of dabble around a bit, 
you can always sort of say, oh, well, this will do for today, mm. sort of thing. Mm. And, uh, and, of course, when you're a teacher, uh, or if you sort of make your living as a, as a teacher, um, you can't do that. There are great chunks of your life when you're not going to be, for example, you're rather silly to try to write poems if you're teaching a course on Yeats, because he's taken you over, and there's so little room for yourself that if you start writing, you know, that there's the ghost behind you. So uh, it's, it's a curious thing, this being a, a, a teacher as well as a, as a writer, that it's... I don't think it's a particularly healthy or congenial thing to do, but that's only in retrospect. At the time, I was felt fortunate to have the jobs I did and, uh, you know, just what time you could make. I'm sorry, that all sounds a bit untidy and not a very satisfactory answer. Yeah. Do you identify with um, confessional writers at all? I mean, do you, do you see, see yourself as a confessional writer? I hope not. <laughs> um, it depends. Writers, we all write about ourselves to, to some extent, but it's a great mistake ever to think a reader, because you're going to really be interested in this because it's about me. You know, that's the thing about certain confessional writing, especially in poetry, I didn't like. That if I write... Remember in the 80s, particularly, I suppose you think of Anne Sexton and so on, writers like that. You almost felt you're a failure if you didn't have anything pretty dreadful to confess. And if you'd tried suicide once or twice or um, gone, th gone through a number of marriages and uh, or whatever, well, that was fine. You had something to write about. And so it's running, it seems to me, life too closely together with the, the business of, of writing. But, of course, there's some... Where do you draw the line? Mentioning Yeats or, or Keats, you know, you could say if you wanted to, the great odes are, are confessional poems, mm, mm. as indeed they are. It's more that one of that the interest of the poem will be the feeling of being allowed to eavesdrop on the writer going through the particular anguish or circumstances that led to wanting to write this poem and that sort of writing I don't particularly care for. Mm, mm. And yet, one of the problems with, I suppose, poetry and, and prose is that it's a very curious thing that's often struck me that in short stories, um, if it's written in the first person, we'll just accept that as a convention. You know, I can say I and I could be an astronaut on Mars or I could be a woman in a shop, I could be anything, and I can say, I, oh, and everyone accepts that. But in poetry, we're still sort of a bit hamstrung by this notion of the I of poetry, the lyric I, that means this is you speaking. There's one poem of mine, for example, that um, someone wanted to use an anthology, and I couldn't let them because... It was written in the first person about their father, and yet 
it wasn't my father at all. And the editor got quite angry with me and said, well, you shouldn't be doing that. In other words, what they were objecting to was treating a poem as if it was a short story. But it seems to me that as soon as we start, once we've said and three times in a sentence, we're off into the story anyway. And there's no reason at all why poetry, it seems to me, can't do that. But you can see that a lot of people don't care for it. For example, I'll read um, an example of what I'm trying to say. This is a, is a poem called Don't Scrap Those Second Best. And it's a love poem, a sort of love poem, written in the first person. But I like to think that the reader will realise that it's not me I'm writing about. But then maybe this is an imposition on my part with that assumption. But it goes, <clears throat> it was a boring, I can tell you, so boring a room until you chanced in. There was a curtain one wouldn't trust to keep rain from a spider. There were three vases dotted around the room, each less lovely than the one before or after, whichever you began from. The bed made even rickety seem an adjective privileged in from Versailles. And with us on the bed, Cherie, Lucy and Freud might have considered at last it's beyond me fixing flesh as it is to the occasion's aura. It was, as any lover insists, a journey from here to special places, then back to the vases, the curtain, the plethora of etc. Then dead honest announces, Monomore, when lyric notches the ceiling across the chosen shoulder, you'll be first to know. And, and so at least I'd like to hope that someone would read that and not think that this is, is a confessional poem. This is a page from a diary that's been turned into, into verse. But uh, that's, a, that's a difficult one because I know people, when they read a poem, they can say, I'm entitled, the whole lyric tradition of poetry means that I'm entitled. In fact, I'm obliged to take I to mean the person writing the poem. And perhaps that's a pretty heavy tide to try and swim about against. But if you do that, it cuts you off from all sorts of poems because lots of poems, like certain short stories, you think are just waiting to be for the first person to come across. If that was put into a third person and I said he or she... I think it would be, well, sort of a, a less, uh, for me, a less convincing poem. I'm wondering how much politics features in, in your writing. I mean, I know over your, your career you've, you've been political in very interesting ways, and I, I can remember some of the pieces you know, I, I vaguely remember it was behind the fern curtain or something. I remember you, something you were writing about politics early on. And I also was fascinated, speaking of politics, to realise that 
You did go to live in Greece, but you only stayed there eight months because you were driven out by a coup. Mm. So um, I'm just wondering, particularly the relationship with Greece, the way that works in with John Morgan and your sense of the world situation, how, how, to what extent is that enmeshed in, in what you write and how you think about literature? Perhaps not as much <coughs> as you might think. I'm deeply interested in politics, but that doesn't mean to say that I'd be any good at writing about politics. Um, I think what we're doing in poetry or in the sort of fiction that, that I'm interested in is you're primarily looking, you're focusing on an individual mind. Admittedly, they're part of a larger landscape. But I think if I wrote a poem... For example, I can imagine writing a poem about a drunken socialist or a pederast capitalist or something, but the idea of writing a poem about capitalism or socialism just seems to me not attractive and I don't think I could do it. In other words, it's not the place for an intellectual or philosophical argument about this. I'm not interested in trying to make a convert. Usually when we're arguing with people, we really want in the long run for them to agree with us, don't we? And I'm not interested in doing that as a writer, I think. I'm not, I'm not trying to use what I write as in any sense uh, a directive or a pulpit, but just a close focus for the moment on a particular event or a particular personality and using various technical or whatever you want to call it um, aspects of, of writing to get that across. It, it, it's a very tricky one. For example, when I was doing the Ralph Hawtrey book, Ralph, and it caused quite a lot of discussion and even resentment and some quarters, was <clears throat> because Ralph didn't like being called a Maori painter. And he said, people don't talk about Charles Brash as a Jewish poet. That, in other words, he thought, yes, that's fine if you use Maori as a noun about me, because clearly that's what I am but I don't like it when it's used as an adjective because the adjective is imposing certain expectations on what I do as an artist. And I've lost that freedom, that artistic freedom. So that's a bit my view about politics. Some people have an enormous gift for writing political novels. Well, you think of something like Conrad's The Secret Agent, one of the great political novels. But if you haven't got that particular gift, well, don't, don't try. And there's no reason at all why a, an artist or a writer of any kind has an obligation to declare their religion or their prejudices or their personal opinions on anything in a poem or in a work. It's simply the great thing about the arts is that it's possibly the last area of total freedom that we have. 
And the minute someone says to a painter or a, a writer, you should be doing this, your contemporaries are looking at this, why aren't you? The minute that happens, it's the beginning of censorship. So that's simply mm. you know, my view about politics. But then thinking about particularly your pieces for theatre, and, and I'm, I'm thinking about Billy, for example, yes. which is you know very much about the Aboriginal situation mm. in Australia, or, or Shuriken, which is a, yeah. about the, um, the massacre at the, de, the uh, detention camp. Um, whether or not you intend those to be political, they're often seen and read and performed as political. Yeah. And I believe Shuriken was performed yeah. in Japan and in, yeah. in Germany. So. Yes. Well, it's interesting you mentioned drama because I should have said with the exception of drama. Mm. <laughs> because drama, the very form, forces you into a, a public statement. If I'm up here saying words that have been written in a play, that means that I want not one person reading them, but I want a group of people um, sort of responding to them. And, yes, I think all the plays I've written have been about politics, mm. curiously enough. Because you wrote one on Casement, isn't mm. it, didn't you? Yes, yeah. and uh, uh, the play I wrote about Roger Casement and was about the, uh, well, finally about the, the, the destruction of the Putumayo Indians in South America and so on, which makes me think, is it any wonder my, po my plays aren't popular? Uh, <laughs> riveting topics like that for the average New Zealander. But... Uh, Yes, theatre can't help but be political, I think. Because theatre will only work if there's sort of if there's discourse and discussion and you can't go wrong with characters without matters of disagreement that have to be resolved or there are reasons why they're not resolved. And so it's always a clash of personalities and clash is the essence of politics. Yeah, yeah. So... Uh, Yes, it doesn't apply to, to drama. I should have made that clear. Do you write um, with a, a particular reader or, or audience in mind? I mean, you've just talked about the audience for drama and, you know, you're expecting that a group of people is going to respond, not necessarily unanimously, but they'll respond in, maybe in ways according to type. Uh, I think it's, you know, certain things you read and you just have a sense that this was written with a particular reader in mind, maybe a particular publisher in mind. Do you... Do you have anyone, a reader other than yourself? That... Well, you have to to some extent, don't you? Uh, I think, you know, <clears throat> if... Just imagine if Joyce had been born in New Zealand and if he'd written Ulysses about events in Auckland in 1904, do you think he'd have been published even now? course not, you know, that a, a writer has to gear themselves to the opportunities that are available. And <clears throat> that doesn't mean to say that you have to set out, oh, well, look, I want to nobble this particular person or that. But you can't help but be aware that of the possibilities of where a thing might be published. Um, but beyond that, I, I, I think if you're reasonably critical about yourself, and you know if you're making a hash of things and you should be putting it aside. Um, I suppose there's a sort of... People talk about the ideal reader, but the ideal reader is the one who's going to buy your book, isn't it? But, uh, <laughs> <and> <laughs> 
I don't want to keep pushing you about politics, but I want to just spin things around a little bit. Um, someone recently sent me an, an email with a, a photograph of a bookshop window with a sign in the window that said, uh, please note the post-apocalyptic fiction section has been moved to current affairs. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yes. and, and I guess my question is, to what extent does politics prevent certain types of writing? I mean, you know, who, who can really write any satire these days that doesn't yeah. sort of um, and and uh, you know do, where does where does literature go in the in the age of spectacle and in, in the age of live stream mass murder and the age of sort of live stream beheadings and those sorts of things? What what can the writer do? Well, that's I think a constant problem for every writer just comes at <coughs> in their own way by the choice of. <coughs> You know, some might want to escape entirely from realities. Other people might want to go into it more. Um, <clears throat> you think of German fiction just after the war, the variety of it, of some of the best of, that I'm aware of, um, doesn't really engage with the violence of war at all. So you can say the big part of war is left out of some of the best books about war. It's just a matter of how things is, a, is approached. But things like uh, the world we're in, in now, people who uh, I simply don't know, every writer will give you a, a different answer. And uh, my answer is that uh, luckily it's too late to have to bother me too much. I mean, that's simply an artistic glib answer, that um, I'd love to write more about politics, but um, in a fictional form, but I don't think I can. Mm. Mm. And it, it's a lot harder than people think to write convincingly of politics. I'm just thinking about your novels and, you know, Believe is the Bright Coast, and one of the things about that novel is that you, know, you, you use what I see as the grotesque in a particularly interesting way. I, I, you know, you set your characters up and they seem right at the margins of everything and then in the next part of the novel you you take them way past that and you find them as sort of um, captured by an, an hermaphrodite serial killer. Um, yeah. And <clears throat> yes, that, that sort of moves beyond the sort of politics as we usually yeah. mean. It doesn't enter sort of an area of the grotesque, but what interests me, not that I've written that much sort of you would call grotesque writing, but that it always interests me is that a grotesque person is, is very unlikely to be grotesque to themselves, but normality is going to look pretty, pretty bizarre and horrendous. And so the thing is with the grotesque writing is to try and suggest both. Mm that you're still talking about the ordinary, but it's the ordinary in a way that has sort of multiple or different facets to it. When I read something like Believes the Brycoast, and some of your other, I mean, your short stories, I mean, there's a short story where it seems a fairly innocuous incident where a man slips off a tram and, and, um, and he loses his shoe and someone goes and helpfully picks his shoe up for him and then realises that actually there's still a foot inside it. Um, and uh, um, I remember Flannery O'Connor, who you could do some amazingly grotesque things um, yes. with with a very straight face, said um, she took pride in being able to recognise a freak 
in a day in in a day when the man in the grey flannel suit is celebrated as normal. Mm. Um, and then she went on to say, uh, to the hard of hearing, you shout, and for the blind, you draw large and startling figures. Mm. Um, there's, there's, there's certainly she does that. I think you're far more subtle in what you do. But maybe what interests me is the contrast between believers to the bright coast, where you know the the, the nun is ultimately killed when the car falls on her, like the sort of descent of the Holy Spirit. Um, and then you get to all this by chance, where you're dealing with the Holocaust, but in such an understated and subtle way that um, it, it's gestured to, and the Im- impact of it is reflected in those who survive and those around it, and the sort of it's it's the aftermath with a small a, and yet for all of that, it touches more closely to the to the personal and the particular. And I, I wonder if that was a deliberate choice. I, th- I think so. <clears throat> it it has to be. Um, in New Zealand, for example, interesting as our history is in certain ways, there are great swathes of experience that aren't part of New Zealand history, either in the past or the present. But if you want to write about something that touches that area, you have to sort of, I do anyway, refine it down a bit. So if I wanted to write about a Nazi, say, I feel that I don't know enough and I can't invent enough to do it convincingly from a European perspective. So it has to be to some extent, reshaped in a way that will convince, convincingly fit into New Zealand society. Or something. That's why most of what I write is, is set in New Zealand, because for better or worse, it's where I am. I've got no choice in being someone else. It would be nice. I think, goodness, wouldn't I be an interesting writer if I was an Italian Buddhist? But things like that aren't, aren't our choices. So this is the rather grey society that I was born into and that we're all born into, which isn't a derogatory thing. Grey is actually uh, rather an attractive colour when you think of the fireworks that go on in most places. But it does mean that you you sort of temper your narrative in a way that is consistent with your own character and experience. Now, when I say this, I'm enormously aware that any other uh, writer in the audience might think, no, I come at things in an utterly different way. And that gets back to that point I'm making that the thing I love about art of any kind is that there is nowhere that gives you such freedom and there is nowhere where other people have got the right to say you shouldn't be doing it that way. You might make a hash of it, but you've got the freedom choose to make a hash of it. I have a lot more questions I'd like to ask you, but they're my questions, and what I actually like to do is throw the, um, the questions open to the floor and, um, and, and invite you to join in the um, conversation. Um, maybe because we're, we're here to hear Vince, if I could encourage people to stick to questions rather than necessarily statements or epiphanies, <laughs> um, and, and, and then we can... Um, 
maybe dig a little bit into um, some of the, the other aspects of Vince's writing career. So does anyone have a, a question they'd like to ask? We've got, here we are, one at the front. We've got roving mics around. Um, Vincent, you, you talk about play and that freedom to play, and I wondered if there was a form that you feel you're most playful in out of all the forms you write in that gives you that, I, I guess, yeah, a place where you feel f less constricted by what you have to do in the form or length or, yeah. Less constricted by the form of what you're doing. No, because I don't think... <laughs> I don't want to sound pompous, but you can't get away from form. You know, like Melville says, form is the preserving salt itself. And I think that's right. It doesn't matter what you write. If it doesn't have a form that has an interest in itself, it'll be a bit like removing the mould of a blancmange too early. And they'll be dripping everywhere and so on. That's, that's my idea of, of form. It keeps you in place. It obliges you to keep the shape. But I didn't realise I was sort of so grim in other forms. You know? <laughs> the only time I'm really playful and in, in fiction, I suppose, is occasionally writing checks. But, uh, <laughs> but that's very short fiction. <laughs> And I don't want to give the impression that I'm that, that what I write is too solemn. I think that there's quite a lot of sort of comic or things. Although, to me, if anyone said to me, what is a single sentence that seems to you to sum up life more than anything else? It would be a line of a Brecht poem where he says, the laughing man has not yet heard the news. I believe the news is um, yes to euthanasia and no to cannabis. That's right. Yes. Um, so that means, oh, that's all it means. I can go when I like, but I can't have a last smoke. No, no, oh. no that's right. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, a question there? Hi there. Um, Vince, do you feel that uh, when you sit down to write, whatever, whatever form it is, uh, everything is available to you, or do you get stuck and need to stop and do some research? Oh, I think, well, again, just... I, I, unless you're a Dickens or something, I think most writers must get stuck at, at certain times. And whether it's the idea that can't work out quite as you hope or the form you're using, the short story you mean is really sort of a novel that you need to do it or something like that. Um, yeah, I, there is an element of chance in it all, all as well. Yeah. It's very... When you start... The trouble is when you start talking about the, the writer's life or writer, writerly life, it can... can start to sound a bit precious, can't it? And uh, 
So I don't think there's much you can say about it, finally, um, except this or that may or may not work for me. But then, of course, it's lovely when you come across a, a great writer, someone you admire a lot, and read them writing about their own work, and that's, you know, that's, that's very agreeable. But on politics, <laughs> jump back to that thinking uh, when I just said a writer really admire. I know people now who say Evelyn Waugh is unreadable because he's really such a bloody awful old Tory in most of his views about everything, and yet he just happens to be a very great writer. And so that's your individual problem as a reader, isn't it? It's nice to read someone we agree with, but when you read someone page by page and think, my goodness, that's beautiful writing, and he turns out to be someone that, uh, you know, would probably have you shot if he had his way, it's more difficult. Can I ask your, um, your approach to biography? Uh, it's a bit of a personal question, because I found in the, the one biography I've written that... Um, uh, I always felt like I was um, being a bit duplicitous because the idea was that you produced a book that someone at the end of reading it would sort of say, "Oh, now all the, I know, I know what I need to know about that person." When, when of course, that's never the case. You you shape it and you select and you discard and you include bits and pieces. And I mean, you can read all the different biographies biographies of Mansfield, and you know each one shapes it differently. Mm. But what was what was your approach to, to Mulgan in particular? Because that to me finishes a little bit equivocally, you, you, you don't come down hard on the side of how his life ended um, necessarily. Well, I had to be um, sort of open-ended at the end of the Mulder thing because he committed suicide and there's only so far you can go with tracing another life. But you, it's a point at which you just can't go. And so I felt with Mulgan I could understand him, I could follow him up to about three hours before he died and then I couldn't understand him. And I had no right to guess because it was a biography, it wasn't fiction. And it's interesting, the theories that people have about his death, you know, um, what was, was it depression, was it this or that? Any of these things may have been possible, but as a biographer... As a biographer, I think you try to be as both as complete and as considerate with evidence as you can be, but you should never speculate. And a couple of reviews of that I know said, oh, but it seems fairly obvious that Malcolm killed himself for this reason or that, or he was involved with another woman and didn't want to go back to his marriage and so on. This may be so, but unless I've got evidence for it somewhere, closer to the man, I've got no right to sort of impose that on, it, on anyone else. So it, it means sometimes... I don't believe that a biographer has to tell everything. I think there are things in a biography that, you know, it's being a bit purist if you say... 
No one's got the right to any secrets at all after their will. Forget about rights and so on. It's a matter of your decision. But if I know something that is quite unpleasant about someone, but it makes no difference whatever to anything else that they did or are known for, etc., I think it can be a bit gratuitous to, to put it in. I don't mean hiding sort of big secret sins sort of things, but, but minor things, minor dishonesties and so on. And the world hasn't lost anything from a bit of respect for the personality of that person that you're dealing with. Yeah. What's a biographer's responsibility to, to the living, do you think? Oh, God. Um, they have very strong views about, <laughs> about what a biographer should be doing. And um, my attitude is that so, some people very close to, emotionally close to someone, do have a right to say, look, look at this again. But I don't think anyone's got the right to say, look, don't really talk about that day he murdered a bank teller. You know, you can't do that. You can't finish to that. Uh, you know. Mm, mm. Well, perhaps I could just oh, yeah. read a, a, poem. A, a poem that finishes um, about my view of a certain view of poetry. It's called After Lucy Tinnacori's Famous Party. I love it that poetry now so possesses the world it is not possible to play pin the tail at a children's party without every child being the winner wherever the tail's pinned. Space is guaranteed compliant the way thumbs fumblings inevitably spot on. Every child comes home happy. I won just as much as Jane did. There's as many winning donkeys as smiling kiddies. What a happy thing to realise so early on. Only one child slap, oh, but lightly, as mum hauls her back to the Humvee, taking her home. Holly, her name, the spoiled child who refused to play, who shouted, I know I lost, stop saying I won. And twice on the drive back saw donkeys and paddocks and tails exactly where she knew they had to be and said, slapped for that as well, see, ass. <laughs> <laughs> With my eyesight looking at the clock, we may have time for one more question and one more poem. Do we have one more question? Brian. Uh, the, the, um, the, the, the microphone's just on its way. Vince, yeah, I, I was just wondering if there are any areas really that a writer shouldn't venture into. In other words, do you have taboos before you actually 
write something or when you see what you've written and you think, no, I'll stick that in the, in the drawer and that's where it should remain? Uh, no, it's offensive enough I'd like to publish it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think uh, writers... Writers generally, I don't think, um, give up the chance lightly to, you know, have areas that they'll accept as, as no-go areas. Do you have one more poem? Pardon? Do you have one more poem? Yeah. Like to... um, I wrote this after a dermatologist I go to who charges so much I call him Goldfinger. Um, and you wouldn't believe the number of services that dermatologists offer these days. I wouldn't say them publicly. And... Um, this just made me think of the how there's nothing that we can't fix or fix about ourselves as we like to imagine. It's called The Story of Born Again Brightly being the name I chose. <coughs> I was in the waiting room of the famous specialist when my name was called. Not my name exactly, but a nurse announced matter-of-factly, will the man with a million-dollar driveway a second Filipino spouse, a biography half-commissioned, a mantelpiece of silver trophies for middle-distance hurdling, speak with Dr. Lopez now. The famous doctor nodded curtly. He said, the soul too has its cry for cosmetics. This first morning intent on removing the desire for first among equals, at which point... I take in the signed photographs of dictators saluting his walls. On subsequent mornings across several weeks, Dr. Lopez operating deftly on the smaller lesions of wealth, on investment melanoma, <clears throat> on impacted properties, ingrown shares, devalued tumour. He held aloft in forceps the still palpitating nodule of the soul's deep fascination with itself. The memories of women which may, as he said, appear calcified, yet nerves will still respond. The various ganglia of hardened envy, and in the last and toughest week, the dilated diaphragm of ambition, its states indicated by striations as in rings on trees. These procedures... <clears throat> variously catalogued as spiritual exercises, as the enlightened way, as nirvana in stitches rather than tears, still others described in languages that elude me, which the charge nurse checks with a pencil as if no more than a teacher ticking names on sports days, ensuring the same number of pupils except the baths as arrived by bus. She then briskly assures all surgical removals are disposed of according to protocols of best practice. There can only be room for improvement. There is no going back, you accept, once incisions have been made. The transplants themselves are to date to be decided 
by further consultation with Dr. Lopez and his team. The nurse smiles for the first time, sororial, the word, calls me graciously, born again brightly, as I am from now on in. I want to thank you all for coming and uh, spending an hour with us um, and listening to some of the things that Vincent has to tell us about it, had to tell us about his writing. I want to thank Vince very much for spending the time. Uh, he will be available uh, to uh, sign books out at the UBS book stand. Um, but for now, let's um, dilate our diaphragms of ambition and, um, and, and, and thank him once more for the time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.